welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hey, I'm Jeff, a uh, great recovering sexaholic. I really, really want to thank everyone that's been a part of organizing this conference. is my first one, and uh, I'm just so, so grateful. Um, but one thing's been bothering me since this morning. It's driving me crazy. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I just keep wondering when the heck is Chuck and Ann going to get their own reality show? <laughs> but I really used that in my life. Okay? We'll talk after. Um, so Hadass and I know each other from uh, our group back in Cedarhurst, Long Island. Um, I was actually at Hadassah's first meeting uh, four and a half years ago, and I feel so blessed to know her. In general, I just, I just want to say every single person in this room has enormous courage for being here and being a part of the program. But I, I have so much gratitude towards women in SA who have the courage to come in the rooms. I know where we are. It's not easy. There are a lot of men in those rooms. And... For me in particular, I get an enormous amount of having fellowship with women in SA. We're all just souls on this journey, just um, trying to get better and, uh, and heal each other. So thank you. Um, so Hadassah is somebody that just brings everything she's got to a meeting and to this program. She's incredibly passionate. She's incre- incredibly devoted to her recovery, but also does an enormous amount of service. And I remember back, this was just about a month and a half ago that we were at this, this really special small retreat, and a bunch of those people are here. Um, it was really amazing. And uh, my sponsor was sharing how, for the first 30 days of my sobriety, he made me read the doctor's opinion every day, over and over and over again. Um, and Hadassah came, and it was really great to do that in the end. And Hadassah came over to me afterwards and was like, I love that. I'm going to go do that. And I was like, okay, have fun with that. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but you know what? Two weeks later, I show up early in a meeting, and there's Hadassah with another member of, of SA, women SA, who are driven about an hour and a half, and they're sitting there pouring over the doctor's opinion like it's like a piece of Talmud or something. Like they're just every word, like what does it mean? What's going on? And that's Hadassah. Hadassah is uh, a woman that just brings so much passion and energy and dedication into this program. She's a very deeply, deeply spiritual person. And you know what they say is that religion are for those people that don't want to go to hell, but spirituality for the people that have been. So with that, I will give you Hadassah. Good evening. My name is Hadassah. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. I'm going to leave with a weakness. I am terrified to be up here. 
Okay, so my sobriety date is September 7th of 2020, and for that, I'll never be sexually grateful. So before I start talking, I want to take a moment to really thank Kevin and Angie, because they don't even know how much gratitude Mayor and I have. If not for Kevin and Angie, not only would it be possible that I wouldn't be here right now, but I would not be married to my husband. Kevin and Angie have been instrumental in our journey. They continue to be huge inspirations to both of us, and they are the reason we wake up every day and choose to fight. You are what we want to be when we grow up, so please continue showing up and doing what you're doing because we can't do this without you both. Thank you. I also want to take a second to quickly say, say thank you to my Cedarhurst group back at home because if not for them, Mayor and I wouldn't be here. Financially, we wouldn't have been able to make it and Cedarhurst stepped up and they have stepped in many, many different ways and they, they made it possible for us to come. So thank you for everybody. Um, the big book on page 58 says that we were going to share in a general way what it was like, what, what it used to be like, what, it, what happened, what it's like now. So I entered life with a, a very broken toolbox. I grew up in an extremely toxic home. My home was filled with lies and deceit, and from a very, very young age, I, taught, I was taught that secrets was a solid success. I remember walking into my parents' bedroom when I was very, very young and watching my grandmother on her hands and knees with a hijab on her head reading from the Quran. Being raised in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, this was a secret that we would never dare speak of. We were never allowed to ask about any questions about my mother's side of the family. My dad was tragically killed in a car accident when I was six years old, and I spent years watching my mother wait at the window for him to come home. My mother drilled into us that we must believe that he was coming back, and so I did. I never really mourned my dad's death because in my tiny and naive brain, I believed he was still alive. My mother would make us sleep in his bed. My brothers were forced to wear his clothes, and he was spoken about in the present tense. It took me many, many years to understand that my dad was finally dead. My house was filled with drugs, alcohol, sex, and rage, and my siblings and I were drowning in our own grief. And as a result, we used whatever coping mechanisms we could to survive. During this very chaotic time, it became easy for the ball to be dropped, and thus began the incestual hell that per 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 perpetrated for many, many years. My mother's mental illness was triggered by my dad's sudden death, and very, very quickly, my home became a very dangerous place to be. My mom would beat us with knives, bats, shoes, hangers, glass bottles, anything and everything. On more than one occasion, my life was severely threatened and compromised, and I feared at night to close my eyes, unsure of which monsters were lurking in the shadows. On one occasion, I remember my mom taking my little brother's hands and putting them into boiling hot water 
as he screamed in agony for the sole reason of him not waking up on time for religious services. I was reminded daily how unwanted and what a mistake I was. And at the age of seven or eight, I was already using masturbation as a, soothe, as a way of soothing and comfort. He would help me manage the insanity that was going on around me. By the age of 10 years old, I had my first official boyfriend, and by 11, I was already crossing gender boundaries. I was the girl who educated everyone at school, who taught everyone how to masturbate and how to touch others. I was walking home from school when I was about 10 years old, and I remember out of the corner of my eyes, noticing something super enticing. I quickly ran over and noticed pictures of naked men and women performing sexual acts on each other. All the other girls who were with me started screaming and ran away. And I remember stuffing those images into my pocket. And thus my obsession with porn and pornographic images began. I will never forget the relief I got when I saw that first image. It felt like everything was floating around me, like I had finally found the magic I had been searching for. I remember promising myself at that moment that I would do everything and anything for the rest of my life to recreate that warm and euphoric feeling. I had finally found my purpose in life. School life was not no better than home life. I didn't really have any friends. Because after the initial curiosity and education wore off, they became sick and tired of my desperate and obsessive need to talk about lust repeatedly. I was severely bullied in school. As you can see, I'm 411. In reverse honesty, I'm actually 410. <laughs> and I will never forget that day. We were playing in the, in the schoolyard. And out of nowhere, a bunch of girls came charging towards me. I remember they lifted me up and dumped me into a garbage dumpster. Now you can imagine the humiliation. I was too small to get myself out. I spent the next couple of hours stuck in, in there until someone passed by finally and helped me out. I ended up getting detention that day for missing class. I was way too ashamed to explain that going to class that day was simply out of my control. By the age of 13 or 14 years old, I already had multiple acting out partners that were well above my age. Any man or woman who took any interest in me became a game of seduction. I got people fired from their jobs for acting out with a minor. Little did they know, I was the aggressor the whole time. I got caught in school having an inappropriate relationship with the principal's nephew. and showed them well. And as a result, I was sent on a plane to Israel while the adults in my life tried to patch things up. Arriving in Israel was like a little girl in a candy shop. There I was, in a country where there were really no rules. All of the clubs and bars turned a blind eye to the minor who entered. And so began the next phase of my progression about the disease. I used drugs and alcohol daily 
and would exchange sex for any kind word for affirmation. The things I've done, the things I've done in active addiction are things that I still struggle to talk about. I destroyed anyone and everyone that got in my way. I was so selfish and so self-centered. Everything was about me, me, me. My addiction brought me to dark alleyways, to psych wards, to sex clubs, to dungeons, to hospital beds, to rehabs, and so much more. My disease had no limitations or boundaries. It was cunning, it was baffling, and so powerful. It would convince me to do things I swore I would never do. I will never forget taking advantage of my friend when she was drunk. It brought me to my knees more times than I could count, and I begged, begged God on many occasions to please take my life, to kill me and relieve me of the agony of my existence. I attempted suicide a couple of times, and three of those times I got very close to being successful. I simply didn't see a way out. I was complete and I was a complete and total slave to my disease. It had me by the chains and I was in complete and total bondage. I thought if people knew what I was doing in my lives and the lives that I was destroying, I wouldn't need to kill myself because they would kill me first. I lived with so much shame and self-hate, I couldn't stand looking at the image of myself in the mirror. And all I saw staring back at me was an empty shell of a person who used to be. I finally met my husband when I was 17 years old, and I was certain that now I had found the one I'd be done. All the craziness would end. I wouldn't need all those escapes anymore. I would finally be free. I could finally live the dream I'd been so desperately trying to live my whole life. I had tried stopping on my own. I broke devices. I deleted numbers. I swore that I would remain abstinent or that I would have, you know, nothing seemed to work. I was unfortunately very mistaken. The intimacy and connectivity in my marriage was actually the thing that fueled and justified my disease much, much more quickly. A sexaholic marriage was a painful relationship based on lies and secrets. I betrayed my husband repeatedly and gaslit him daily. Whenever he suspected me of anything, I would convince him that he was insane and that he had no right to suspect me of anything. I stripped myself of any remaining self-esteem or self-worth. Our marriage was full of deception. My children and spouse were suffering from the progression of my disease. I exposed my children to horrific and dangerous things. I will forever be remorseful and pained for those destructive choices. And I will continue until the rest of the time to try everything in my power to make it up to them by living every single day in the solution as a living amend to how much I've wronged them. I also pray that one day may be God's will 
that I will have the opportunity to make a proper amends to them. My marriage obviously didn't stop the eviction. In fact, any argument we would have would perpetrate the justification packed out, and the cycle was never ending. I was in agony, and my life was slowly falling apart. My husband and children didn't want to ever be around me. They resented me and rejected me daily, and they were pained by this selfish person they once called their wife and mother. In 2019, things took a turn for the worse in my addiction, and I was at the edge of it all. I was going to lose my husband and my, my job and my children, and I reached out to a therapist who agreed to meet me. After the second session, she said, Hadassah, you're very clearly a sexaholic. You need to go get help. I was shocked by this revelation. And so I did what I do best. I ran. I fired her the very next day. I knew deep down that it made sense. It felt right at the core. So after a little bit of time, I decided that I would try and attend my first essay meeting. I remember my first meeting. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever done. I remember thinking to myself, anyone ever find out who and what I really am, I would literally kill myself from the humiliation and shame. I went into my first meeting wearing a hoodie and figured I'd listen to and say nothing. Nobody will notice me. I will be completely invisible. Did I know I was the newcomer in the room? <laughs> <laughs> the most important person there. <laughs> I remember listening as one by one, each of the fellows in the room, in a different way, began to share the feelings, the pain, and the secret that I was buried deep down inside. At the end of the meeting, they gave me a 24-hour check. I have that chip till today, and I hold on to it. I literally put my hands in my pocket and hold on to that chip. Like, practically every single day. I remember putting that chip in my pocket and going to my car where I began to cry and cry and cry. And I said to myself, on one hand, it felt like such a relief. For the first time, I felt understood and seen and less alone. But at the same time, how was it possible that those crazy, insane, sick people are the ones that I identify with most? <laughs> I wasn't quite ready to fully put down my drugs, so I didn't go back to a meeting or any meeting for many months. But I knew deep down that that was my place, that that was my home. I just didn't have the strength to take that leap. In March of 2020, during COVID-19, my rock bottom finally occurred. I attempted to take my life through an overdose. I was so sick and tired of being so sick and tired. And it is only by God's grace that my husband found me in time and saved me. After that incident, I decided to go back to SA. It was much easier this time because the Zoom meetings were less intimate and I didn't need to feel so vulnerable. I started attending meetings three to five times a day. It became my everything. It felt so comforting to hear people sharing the same fears and resentment. I finally found the potential key to my, my health that I've been living. Regardless of the sentiment, I, I simply couldn't get sober. I tried again and again and again, and nothing seemed to work. 
I would get a day, and then I would relapse. I would get a week, and then I would relapse. I was also still drinking and drugging, so that wasn't really helping my sexualism. In May of 2020, I finally reached out to a CSAT therapist who was also in recovery for SANA. He really was my first introduction to what true sobriety could look like. He changed my life. He taught me what it could be like to live happy, joyous, and free. He was the first person who showed me what it could look like to have a sober relationship with boundaries and what it looks like to have a relationship with the opposite gender in a healthy way. It was a very bumpy road in the beginning and still today has some really tough, tough and challenging aspects of a therapeutic relationship. However, I am positive without those sober references that he introduced me to, without the belief that he had in me, I would never have made it. Bill W. talks about this in the big book, that recovery is sometimes not enough. People will need outside intervention. And I am confident that without that outside intervention, I wouldn't be standing here today. I eventually had the courage to ask someone to sponsor me and decided to try and start to work a program. The steps are what changed my life. And they continue to change my life on a daily basis. The steps are what helped me uncover discover and discard what was really going on underneath. I was able to finally get to know the real me underneath all that debris. Step one, that was easy for me. Listing my powerless and my unmanageability wasn't a challenge. I'd been living it for so long. Steps two and three were more of a challenge for me. Growing up in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish home, being taught about the punishing, vengeful, and unforgiving God was very hard for me to let go of. I needed to make a list of all my ideas of God, religion, and spirituality, and discard them completely and totally. I needed to start over fresh and recreate, or recreate a conception of God that was personal to me. I would either find God or I would die. I started writing my wish list of what I dreamed since I was a little girl, my perfect daddy would be. And I used that to help me create my God of my understanding. Today, I still struggle very often with understanding God's ways or why he does certain things. When I start doubting and questioning again, I use the acceptance prayer as a tool to help restore me to faith. Remembering that there is a bigger picture, a bigger plan at work, and that I'm not the director or the pilot. That has been my lifeline. Step three is a daily reprieve. I wake up every single morning and I get on my knees and remind myself of my conception of God. I must let go completely of my old ideas because they creep in very often. I say the third step prayer at minimum once a day. Step four was one of the harder steps for me. During my step four, I had another drug overdose and decided to go back to treatment. I finished my fourth step when I got back. I recognized that while I was doing my step four, I went back to complete and total self-reliance. Better talk now. Okay. Um, I felt I no, I'd forgotten to hold on to God, so I, you know, I reached for him. And now I've lost everything. <laughs> I no longer felt like I was hiding. I did a full step for inventory, which included the sex inventory, the fear inventory, 
It was very painful, but a healing journey for me. Step five was when I experienced a real spiritual awakening. My sponsor had me choose three people who were longtime members of SA to go over my step four with. And I shared some of my darkest and deepest secrets with them. I was, at, I was told to ask for feedback and hear all the constructive criticism given to me. I was terrified of being judged and shamed for my horrible action. Today, that fear of judgment so often creeps in. But the difference is that today I share about it as soon as it becomes an obsessive thought. The love, warmth, support, and understanding received by those old-timers was a game-changer to me. Hearing them share their own identification and sharing how it was far from the piece of I imagined myself to be changed me. I can finally accept all of my character defects. Step six and seven was when the physical house cleaning came. One morning, another CSAT therapist shared with me how many hidden bottles I was still holding on to. He shared with me that it was time to make a choice. I was either all in or I was going to relapse again. I told my husband not to leave to work. I told him that I needed accountability, that if he, I didn't do this now, I was afraid I would never do it. It took about three full garbage bags later, a sweep of numbers, apps, email addresses, pictures, and videos, and I was finally free. My husband drove that garbage to a dumpster unbeknownst to me because I was terrified that in a moment of insanity, I would climb in and try to catch those things. That week was one of the hardest weeks for me in recovery. It felt like I had died. I felt an emptiness I hadn't felt in a very long time, and it honestly, it terrified me. I knew that if I didn't up my program, and if I didn't find a way to fill that God-sized hole, a relapse would be inevitable. So I started working my program twice as hard. And it worked. That emptiness started to be. Steps eight and nine are steps that I'm still working on, making amends to my husband and children, will continue to be something that I work on until the day I die. It felt very humbling to go back to stores where I had stolen from, appeared to, to face the full consequences of my action and to be met with utter and complete shock for my honesty and will willingness to come forward. The miracles of this program were to pay people back who I've stolen from, to make indirect amends to women's shelters and to right the wrongs. It was and continues to be the most healing experience for me. Step 10 is something I do daily. And it might, on a daily basis, I do a spot check inventory, and it is a way for me to stay accountable. It's incredibly helpful for me to basically work steps four through nine on a daily basis. And to me, when you're sharing that honestly with yourself and you're sharing that with other fellows, it's almost impossible not to stay sober because you're showing the most darkest and deepest sides of you. I also try to share a gratitude list daily. Step 11. I wake up every single morning and I do my morning prayers. I am really grateful and humbled to say that I haven't missed a single day since my sobriety date. I also have started to recently add the doctor's opinion to my daily routine, which is a powerful reminder that I have a disease that I will never be cured from. I'm not afraid to up my dosage when my program feels like it's lacking, and I've gone to meetings up to five times a day if needed. Sponsorship in, 12, in step 12 is what created the personality change for me. The, women, the woman who was once so terrified of her own shadow and voice, who hated women, who was an introvert, who let nobody in, 
is today a sponsor to six women. I am of service and I am standing before you all today. Here are just a few miracles of the program. I'm going to try to do this as fast as possible. Today, I am running the finance department of a multi-million dollar corporation. The thief and the liar is trusted today. My children and husband have a relationship with me. I can sit on the floor and play with my children and be present today. I have wounds that, love, that may love a real challenge. Yet when I was loved by someone, I felt emotionally safe with. It came with a softening and opening. A willingness emerges from the depths of perfection, which now want to dismantle the walls that once surrounded my once protected heart. I've been searching for love in fantasies and infinity for so long that I would have waited forever for love to come around that way. Deep, intimate love requires work on both parties and willingness. It necessitates radical self-responsibility. It requires honesty like never before. Constantly growing and moving closer requires conscious effort. It requires me to allow mayor into the perceived hardest and ugliest parts of me. The miracles that I have that with him today. Just one day at a time. I was able to cut out a lot of toxic and dangerous people from my life. And I've learned how to set boundaries. I've uncovered my codependency problem that was slowly killing me. And I still have a very long way to go in this area. But my willingness to grow and change every single day gets stronger. I have lived and remained sober through two suicides of my closest friends. I have gotten sober from drugs, alcohol, and self-harm. Sex is optional in my marriage today. And I have women in my life that, can, that I can show up for and help. I have found serenity and peace in my life, and I have experienced moments of true happiness. It doesn't always stay that way, but it's a conscience decision that I make daily to work on. These are only a few gifts. There are so much more. And I thank God every single day for choosing to work the miracle of recovery through me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the next person is going to be introduced by him. Where's he at? Come on up here, sir, and introduce the next speaker. Uh,
Hi everyone, I'm Penny from Montreal. Great tall Um So after introduce Mayor, it's a little bit hard for me. I'm gonna do it. Mayor basically is the person that has answered the phone for me um, when he was introduced to me by three people. When I joined SNL, I was in a very open spot. I was in a spot where I was the only man, at least in, in Montreal, to be in SNL. And my wife's therapist at the time said, I'm going to try and get your numbers from men in SNL. And then she, she gave me two numbers, but one of them was man. I said, I can't get it. But one day, they come to the call him. And one of the women in the SNL group that I joined on Zoom said, I, I just came back from Florida. It was exactly a year ago. I mean, a month after March. We just got back from Florida. We saw this guy in SNL. Reach out to him. I'll get you his number. And they got me the number of mayor. And then another person just... Three weeks ago, when I joined an emperor, said, this guy last year in SNL in Florida, I'll get you his number, and they all gave me his number. <laughs> Same guy. So I reached out to Mayor, and I didn't know at the time, but I was on the phone with him for probably about two hours, till 12.30 or 1 a.m. in March in Montreal. It's cold. We were on the street. I was, I was on the street. I was on the phone with him. Later, I learned that mayor, two hours at that time of the day for mayor is extremely precious because sometimes he can be up or sleep at work. Mayor is an EMT volunteer. He can run a call as well. So it was a very precious two hours I got to learn that I gained from him. And we shared a very similar experience in the sense of the path that we were on, that I was on at least. And he was a couple of years ahead of me. Um, and he always understood me. He was always there to answer the phone. If it wasn't a phone, it was a voice note, a text message. I probably impossible for me to scroll up how many messages we have together back and forth. Um, and the long voice notes, they can be worse than a minute, five, or longer. Uh, it came to a point where May brought me into SNN, the men's group of SNN. Um, I joined the meetings. Two months in, three months in, I asked Mayor to be my sponsor. So Mayor right now is my sponsor, and I'm extremely grateful and thankful for that. He's been there for me all, all the time. He has saved my job, my marriage, but that's about me. But Mayor is a person that has helped many men and is the, probably maybe after Kevin, he's the next icon for men in SNL. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. He says, no. sorry. For me. So, with that, I'm done. Mayor. I try not to follow an awesome. But I'll try. Um, first of all, thank you, uh, everyone that helped me interest, especially Karen and Anthony, for making this possible. Um, last one, we made three students. It's something very scary to be out here, but I'm grateful to be here. Um, we kind of told me that a few months, you know, how important is it really? Uh, first two thoughts that came to my head were how important is Really, how important is that for me to stay on my side of the road? So, I'm gonna get to that hopefully, uh, shortly. Um, I guess I'll just a little bit of my childhood, um, the beginning of our marriage before I get to my recovery. Um, like most people, I thought my childhood was full of secrets, um, mainly 
kept everything really from my mother, um, so we wanted to feel her with that. Um, some of them were taught at a young age um, from my father, so I mean, it was everything away from her, keep it away from her so she doesn't get upset. Um, it was a point where my parents were really struggling financially, and we were all told when we got home first, like in the middle, so my mother doesn't see any bills, and just hide it to my father later. Um, the secrets are still going on with that. We were taught that everything is secret. Things that didn't make sense, things that don't have any secrets. If my parents went on vacation, told not to tell the grandparents. No one should know for no reason. Uh, you know, in my parents' house in the basement, they have a pool. And my grandparents, the room that they stay in when they come to my house is the room next door to the pool, and they don't know there's a pool there. <laughs> No one knew why. It makes no sense. But we just have secrets. That's what we do. It makes, it makes no sense. That, that's what we do. Um, I think that helped me start with my. I was always given in. Um, I want. I learned to keep. You know, I have to keep things cool in the house. So. In my personality to just always say yes to everybody. Um, I never, everyone always said about me as a child, like, oh, he's amazing. He never fights. You know, whatever anyone wants, he says yes. You know, going on road trips with the family, holding the middle seat, doesn't even know see everyone. They complimented me about it, but it was really terrible because it just kept fueling that need for me to be a people pleaser, for me to think that my needs don't have to be met. Um, that went on for you know forever for a long time. Uh, I didn't realize that. Um, uh, when I was in seventh grade, my mother had my youngest brother, and she went into severe postpartum depression. And there were times that I was really afraid for my youngest brother's life. Um, I have vivid memories of at that point we lived in a three-story house, and I remember like holding him over like the railing from the top floor, saying, I'm going to this kid. Um, I didn't go to school for most of that year. I was in seventh grade, and I felt like if I don't stay home, this kid's going to die. And no one stopped it. No one put a stop to it. Not my father, not the school. He saw me not show up. And I just took that role of being his protector. Um, you know, and my bar mitzvah, the principal of the school, uh, which was the end of that year in June, even made a joke like, hey, you weren't in school this whole year. Like, it was a joke. Like, no one even like, thought to ask what was going on. Um, so, from a very young age, I really learned how to act, you know, be everyone's savior, protector. And uh, that stuck with me for a long time. It's things that I still have to work on. Um, I met Hadassah. Um, like she said, she was 17. It was December. Her birthday's in March. Just why that's important is because when, when it was her birthday in March, she told her, you know, happy birthday that you're 19. She said, like, I lied. I'm, I was 17. <laughs> and um, we we started off that relationship also in secret, um, at least on my part, didn't tell people about it. 
um, not my family, not my friends. And um, we, in the beginning, um, you know, we were just friends, we weren't dating. And then we started dating a few months after the summer. Um, in March of that year, um, I ran a marathon in Israel. And the night before the marathon, my friends and I, who were running, went to a restaurant to have a pasta party. And I walk into the restaurant, and I was sitting there with a guy having dinner. And I see that, and I go to her, like, what is going on? And uh, I was told that I'm crazy. It's a friend of the family. It's like a, it's like a brother. And I should just, you know, mind my own business. I'm, not, I'm so insecure. That's my self-esteem issue. It's not our problem. Um, the next day, at the end of the marathon, um, Adasa wasn't there, and she said she's redeemed. And uh, she was with some other people. And again, I was told, like, why are you making such a big deal? Like, it doesn't matter that I promised you I'd show up. Like, it's okay. Just the marathon. You know, I don't have to be there for you. Um, I, I still don't know until today why I didn't see any of these red flags and why I just, you know, could be it wasn't my self esteem issues. Um, but none of these things like even crossed my mind that I questioned. I did come from a home where I never heard the word addiction, never knew of such a thing. So I was pretty uh, unaware of, of any possibility of something like that. Um, while we were dating, I still at that point did not know about any of her. I didn't know. Um, she had been honest with me that um, she, in the past, had been with multiple people. Um, she was honest a lot about her talking to the and stuff. Um, but we were walking and I see like her eyes were anywhere by me. And anytime I questioned what she was saying to people, where she was looking, I was always dazzling. I was always told that that's my insecurities, that's my problem. I have to, you know, just work on myself. Um, when that wasn't enough, I was told that maybe if I dress better, look better, go to the gym, maybe that would, she wouldn't have to look at other people. I should work on myself, on my exterior. Um, that way she would have to look at them. Um, Myself we got married uh, about two years after we first met. Being being young and married uh, in a sexaholic relationship, which at that point I didn't realize was a sexaholic relationship, I thought it was amazing. There was sex all the time, and I figured that's just what you know, young people do, so, sex, <laughs> I didn't find it weird that she was calling me and telling me, get home from work right now, you have to have sex. I would go home from work to have that sex, and she'd be watching porn, and she'd be like, this is what I'm doing to get myself ready. Um, I will, as much as I talk today, I'll try to focus on stuff that that I, that I did see, not focus on her acting out outside because I wasn't there for that. I'll try to talk about my point of view and just the things that happened in the house. Um, and I still, 
didn't see anything wrong, you know, with that, with the fact that she was, you know, using porn, you know, like that, and calling me constantly saying, you have to come home. And if I would say, like, I can't leave, but okay, so I'm just going to take care of myself, like, but, you know, this is your chance. I don't know, I'm pretty sure that some of our SMR readings say that some of us, you know, are ashamed of the things that we participated in. I don't really say that. And, you know, I guess from the, the codependent part of me, there was so much of not wanting to let her down that I participated in things that I am definitely ashamed of or wasn't ashamed of. Um, we got into a car accident once because of things that were going on while we were driving on a highway. <laughs> um, we and we put things in front of TVs for hours, you know, or did things in public that were extremely shameful. Um, and it was just my fear of saying no to my doctor. Uh, I just, I, I couldn't say no. I had no idea how to say no. I, I was afraid of throwing the pot. I didn't have that good sleep. Uh, so I was afraid, of it. I was afraid to, to say no. Um, there were many times in our, you know, the beginning of our marriage where I would, you know, we, I would have a friend over and I would end up like falling asleep or something. I said that, yeah, I'd pass out. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd find like my wife and this guy, like just on the couch watching something together. Um, and that's what I saw. And I was always questioning that as well. And the same thing, like just watching things like, yeah, they're like, here's it's all night. Like, this is on you. Like, this is your issues. Um, and I started to believe it. I really started to believe that my, you know, that I was crazy and that I just had no self-esteem and I was taking it on her and making her feel bad because of my self-esteem. Um, and that, that became a core belief of mine, sure. The last two years of our life before she uh, got sober, um, it was definitely pretty chaotic, um, in and out of the house. And for me, what, what happened was that there was, no, there was obviously zero intimacy. And all of the, anytime that we had sex, it was Adasa would be watching porn before sex, during sex, and after sex. During sex, she would have a phone in front of her face with porn, and she would literally tell me, don't talk. I don't want to know that you're here. I don't want to hear your voice. Don't make eye contact. You just do your thing, and I'll do my thing. I was literally just being used as another form of acting out. And I would tell myself the story of, it's okay. Like, she was abused. This what she needs, and I should have to be okay with it. I would also tell her that I'm okay with it. Um, obviously, I was lying, and it was just, I wasn't going to tell her, so I would tell her it's not a problem, it doesn't bother me. Obviously, my self-esteem was really, really hurting, really shot. Oh, 
pretty low that I saw. Um, definitely felt like I was not enough because I, I was told that I wasn't. I was told to just be an object. I was told to you know, be quiet and just to, you know, and, and the second the actual intercourse was over, it was, you go away, I got these little um, there was, there was no intimacy. Then, uh, then Adasa joined SA, um, and I thought that was crazy because I was like, I don't understand. She's gonna go see a bunch of guys who are sexaholics. Like, this makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe that someone wanted a person like this and other people who also wanted that. I was like, this is the craziest dumbest idea in the world. So I thought it. I thought it. I would try to come up with any excuse why she shouldn't go. I would try to convince her not to go. I would question her motives. I would question every phone call she made, especially with a guy in SA. I said that I would. I wouldn't even eavesdrop. I'd just be like right there by your ear with the like, What are you doing? Like, stop. Get off the phone. There's no need. Um, and I, I really was like blown away by this idea. It made no sense to me whatsoever. Um, I had not joined that at that point, and I was definitely still raging. Um, I didn't realize how much rage I had towards anything like this. And um, we once went to her family for a weekend, and she had a brother who was at that point in a bunch of active in a bunch of addictions, and not a healthy person. And Hadassah and him went on a like an hour and a half, like walk without telling me they just disappeared. They went on a walk, and I had a lot of fear that that would lead to a relapse. A, because of its unhealthiness, B, I had some suspicions of him being one of the abusers. And I was sitting there, and I wasn't part of any program at that point yet. So I was just sitting like in that house, waiting for them to come back, just hearing all this stuff in my head. When she got back, and we went to the, to the room to pack up, I was literally screaming at her. I was so angry. I kicked a hole in the wall in the, the room that we were in. That's how crazy that was before COVID. I, I never even imagined like losing myself like that. And I was so afraid of, of what she was before, you know, her joining us. Not, not that she was so with that, but just afraid of things getting progressively worse. The pain that I had, you know, any sort of control over it. Was pretty crazy. I would question her every time she left the house, how she was dressed, especially if she was going to a meeting. Um, some of that was just my religious self that I was taking out on her. I, I literally questioned everything she did every single day. I didn't believe it. If she came home from an essay meeting later than I thought she did, I'd call her a thousand times. Literally, keep calling her. Not that she was answering, but I kept seeing calling, calling. I was so afraid um, and not trusting of of SA and of what she was doing there. Um, in July of 2020, Adasa's um, job in the in the summer moves. So uh, July of 2020, Adasa called me in one. Uh, for the summer, just for a job, and she said she wants a divorce. 
I actually wanted to get. I was like, this person wanted the course for me after everything I stuffed through. Um, that's when I reached out to SNL and that's where my, my journey of recovery began. Uh, at first, it was just me and a bunch of women. Um, I didn't, I was on the screen. <laughs> I was the only man there. I wore a hoodie, a baseball cap, I was hiding everything. Never turned on the cameras first, but then when I turned it on, but I didn't, I still didn't feel comfortable there. Um, and somehow I got Kevin's number, luckily, and I reached out to Kevin. Uh, Kevin put me in touch with all the guys in SNL. Um, got my first sponsor in SNL, Kevin from Ohio. Um, started sharing, started my, my journey. Uh, kind of recovery. Pretty early on, Das and I had a discussion about abstaining. Um, we're now two and a half years and we're still abstaining since that conversation. Um, I called my sponsor after the discussion and we just had a discussion about abstaining. And uh, uh, what he told me then really worked for me at that point was he said, you love your wife. And I said, I do. So she got into a bad car accident, and she was crippled. Did you leave her? And I said, no. Okay. She's crippled right now. And she's love crippled. Uh, you, can, you can do this. And uh, we spoke about it then, and I won't you know, take it slowly. There's been time during these two and a half years that Adasa has said, you know what, let's, let's end it. Let's have sex. And I said, no. Something that I never thought I'd be able to do. But I, I can't allow myself to be used, and I have to make sure that I feel safe, that I feel comfortable. I'm not there yet. And the same way we started the abstinence with both of us talking to sponsors, therapists, and someone's going to have to end. It's not just going to end on a whim. I'm not going to do that for myself. And it was so scary for me to say no because I felt like it. I know that that rejection is going to kill Adasa, that she's going to go ahead and maybe be less. But I had the courage to do it, and we both survived. We're still surviving. Our intimacy is very different now. We really, really are building a relationship, and it's not about sex. Going on vacation with Adasa, knowing that sex is off the table, has been the most free thing of my life. And I should just get to go and spend time, build a relationship with other countries and affluence, and there's just no stress about that, and it makes it that we're... I know that anything that I'm doing also, I have no ulterior motives. Me, that's also very free. I know that if I get her an expensive gift for a birthday or anniversary, there's nowhere in the back of my head I'm spending a little bit extra money because I think I'm going to get something from this actually. I know it's, that's free for me. It's free to be able to just know that I have no ulterior motives. I'm just trying to work on a relationship. And we... What I had to realize is that I can't have demands. If I, have, if I don't have demands of Hadassah or of relationship, I don't have resentments. I, when I got married, I wrote a script. You know, I just like, this is a minute. But I wrote a script. <laughs> but I came to learn that I wasn't supposed to write that script. That wasn't what it was about. I'm not meant to write my own script. I'm meant to live one day at a time, following, following God's path, whatever it takes me. It's taking me down a life of healthy boundaries, healthy communication, 
my life at work has changed dramatically. I went from working, getting paid for 40 hours, but working 60 hours, to working back down to 40, with getting raises. I'm able to speak up for myself. As my has told me not to allow, by me staying on outside the road doesn't mean that I'm allowing someone to step all over me. It's the total opposite. It gave me my voice. I now can stick up for myself. I now can say what I feel. I just say it in a healthy, emotional way. And if I can't, I wait. I talk to someone. I no longer fear what I'm saying. If, I'm, if what I'm saying is the truth or it's the right thing for me to say, I'm not afraid to say it because the other person's response Thoughts and feelings are not my problem anymore. They're not my problem. I don't have to worry how anyone takes what I say or do if I know them doing it for the right reasons. And that's literally been such a blessing for me. My kids' lives are going to be different than my life. My oldest child is turning nine next month. My son is six. Every single night when they go to bed, we do a gratitude list. They say gratitudes, and then I say my gratitudes. That's, I never even knew the word gratitude growing up. Like it's, it's unbelievable the relationship that we had. If I'm feeling any of the holes, I won't put them to bed because I don't want to take that on them. Either I'll ask Hadassah, can you do it tonight? Or I'll just tell them, guys, tonight I, I can't. Like I'm, not, I'm not able to do it. But not because I don't love them, but because I do it, because I'm not going to. I'm able to actually feel my emotions now, feel my feelings that know what I have to do for myself, what's the best thing for me. Because all I care about is being the healthiest version of me. I'm not doing this for my marriage. That might be a great perk. But at this, I have to do this because even if my marriage doesn't work out, even if it doesn't, I want to be the healthiest version for me. I want to be the healthiest version for my kids. So I worked the SNM program not because of Adasa. Maybe I got into the doors because of her. But I'm working my SM program every single day for me. So I have the chance of being the healthiest version of myself. I can be the best dad, best husband, and the best employee, best boss, whatever it is. I want to do that for me. Working the steps gave that to me. I didn't believe it. I thought sharing what you're doing, I thought all these things made no sense. But to actually do the step work got me to a place today where I know that I have emotional sobriety most of the time. Thanks for letting me share. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.